This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Economist, offering authoritative insight and opinion on international news, politics, business, finance, science, and technology. Stay tuned for the go-to magazine for great minds around the globe, right here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is a reading of The Economist, and I'm your reader, Mary Kiefer, with the audio reading service of the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I'll be reading from the February 10th through the 16th, 2024 issue. And I'll begin with our cover story, Who is in Control? She versus the Markets. Can China's consumers save the economy? Our number crunching suggests economic rebalancing will be exceptionally hard. Most emerging economies struggle to live within their means. China, however, struggles to live up to them. Even in the best of times, the combined spending of its households, firms, and government is not enough to buy all that it can produce, leaving a surplus plus that must be exported. The country has run a trade surplus for 34 of the past 40 years, and these are not the best of times. China is enduring its longest spell of deflation since the Asian crisis cover over a quarter of a century ago. An epic stock market rout since late 2022 has seen investors lose $2 trillion. Behind that panic lies a deeper fear among investors and officials, namely that China no longer has a reliable engine of growth. The country's property boom is over. Cash-strapped developers are afraid to start building flats, and people are afraid to buy them. The infrastructure mania has run out of road. Indebted local governments lack the funds. Exporting goods to the rest of the world, which China relied on for decades to escape poverty, is getting harder as protectionism rises and Western countries become increasingly wary of relying on authoritarian states. Much, therefore, rests on one remaining source of growth— boosting the spending of China's 1.4 billion people. The Chinese market, with its vast space and growing depth, will play an important role in boosting aggregate global demand, Li Qiang, China's prime minister, told the World Economist Foreign in Davos last month. A new IMF review of China's prospects, published on February 2nd, contains 61 references to the word consumption. The goal of raising it makes sense. China's stingy consumers often prefer to save, not spend. Consumption accounts for 53% of GDP, compared with 72% for the world. On this measure, China ranks 156th out of 168 countries. Its resulting lopsided contribution to the world economy is stark.
It accounts for 32% of global investment and 18% of GDP, but only 13% of consumption, according to Michael Pettis, an economist. Even among emerging economies, China stands out. It consumed 7% less per person than Brazil in 2022, though it produced about 40% more. What are the prospects of rising consumption bailing China out? The good news is that 2023 showed some recovery as the end of pandemic-era restrictions allowed people to return to restaurants, shops, and travel. As a result, consumption accounted for over 80% of growth, the biggest share since 1999. The bad news is that the prospects of a step change appear slight, based on the public mood, cross-country maths, and China's own history. Start with the public mood. The turmoil in the property market has damaged the income, assets, and morale of ordinary Chinese. Take Mr. Chen, a construction worker from Jiangsu province. He has struggled to find work, and is not always paid when he does work. He plowed his savings into a flat for his children in a town near his village, where many homes cannot find buyers. What's frightening is not the past, but the future, he says. The mood is mirrored in forecasts. The IMF expects consumption growth to slow during 2024. Then consider the cross-country maths. Even if China escapes deflation this year, the long-term pivot required is daunting. For China to rebalance its economy successfully, consumption would need to rise by about 10 percent points of GDP, according to calculations by Mr. Pettis. The economist has examined how often this sort of shift has occurred around the world. Looking at the experience of 181 countries since 1960 and dividing their economic history into rolling 10-year intervals, we found that only 11% of cases did consumption rise by more than 10 percentage points in the space of a decade. Some of these examples are not encouraging. Albania had a consumption mania in the early 1990s, but also experienced hyperinflation. Taiwan managed a 10-point shift from 1986 to 1996, but the consumer boom was associated with a big stock market bubble. Finally, consider China's own history. The policymakers have talked about rebalancing the economy toward consumption and away from exports and investment for almost 20 years since economic conference at the end of 2004. Back then, consumption's share of GDP was around 55 percent, about the same as today. Rebalancing is easier said than done. Despite this, China has little choice but to try. One option is to promote a new consumer culture. Mr. Lee, in his Davos speech, spoke of rapidly unlocking China's supersized market and upgrading consumption toward new products, such as electric vehicles, smart homes, and green lifestyle services. 
But social change cuts both ways. Even as they say they want to promote spending, officials are on guard against the wrong kind. Draft regulations on the video gaming industry issued in December and then withdrawn instructed companies to punctuate their games with pop-up warnings against irrational consumption behavior. China's leaders could alternatively stimulate consumption through short-term handouts to households, but they seem to view such giveaways as ineffective, wasteful, or worse, an invitation to laziness. That means the most plausible lever is to make citizens feel more financially secure so that they save less and splurge more. Expanding health care and pension provision is important in the long run. Citizens like Mr. Chen might feel relaxed about spending more if it were easier for them to settle in the cities in which they work. Under China's hukou system, a household registry, Mr. Chen is officially a resident of his home village. That makes it harder for him to access schools and hospitals in the cities where he earns a living. Kai Fang of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences thinks giving migrant workers urban high cow, hu cow, could raise their consumption by as much as 30%, although other, other studies report less dramatic results. A study by economists at Southwestern University of Finance and Economics in Chengdu found that rural migrants who obtain urban hukou spend about as much as native city dwellers, but do more conspicuously. The end of the housing bubble could also liberate consumers. The cost of saving for a down payment and servicing a mortgage was 11% of city dwellers' disposable income in 2021, according to rough estimates by Goldman Sachs, a bank. That figure could fall to about 6% in a decade, it estimates. Yet now, for China's approach to hukou, reform is timid and piecemeal. Any dividend from the housing pivot is years away, and there is little sign of comprehensive welfare reform. Consumption will probably increase somewhat as a share of GDP as a large cohort of retiring workers keeps spending but stops producing. The associated demographic drag, however, is hardly positive for growth. For economically insecure citizens like Mr. Chen, the equation points only one way. At 51, he is just nine years from the customary retirement age for blue-collar workers. But he must look after his parents as well as his youngest child. It all depends on me. I don't dare do the maths. For China's government... The calculations are similarly daunting. From the United States, this article is entitled Poll Positions. Trump's lead over Biden in national polls may be smaller than it looks. If America were to hold its presidential election tomorrow, Trump would be picking out curtains for the Oval Office. The Economist's polling average puts him up by 2.3% over Joe Biden nationwide. 
And across the six swing states expected to decide the election, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, he leads by an average of 3.8 points. Betting markets list Mr. Trump as a clear favorite. Never in his past two campaigns were his general election polls this strong. Is it time for the world to brace itself for a second Trump presidency? The election is still nine months away. Historically, polls taken before the summer of an election year have been poor predictors of results. But no former president has sought to return to office since the advent of modern polling. Opinions about the omnipresent Mr. Trump are much firmer than they are about typical challenger candidates, who at this stage of the race are usually still fighting to secure their party's nomination. As a result, even though Mr. Trump is not yet the presumptive Republican nominee, current head-to-head polls between him and Mr. Biden may be unusually informative. Nationwide surveys over the past month have varied widely, ranging from an eight-point lead for Mr. Trump to a six-point edge for Mr. Biden. Polling averages, which blunt the effect of such outliers, suggest that Mr. Trump holds a clear lead. But the polls that comprise such averages differ in their methods and degree of rigor. Democrats hunting for a silver lining can take solace in one clear pattern. Pollsters with the best records of accuracy show better results for Mr. Biden. Lower quality pollsters are kinder to Mr. Trump. Public trust in polling has weakened following the industry's high profile underestimates of Mr. Trump's support in 2016 and 2020, although polling before the 2018 and 22 midterm elections was accurate. Reliably estimating pollsters' accuracy, measured by the size of their historical errors and whether they consistently exaggerate a support for a particular party, requires a large sample of surveys across many elections. 538, a data journalism outfit, recently updated its ratings of American pollsters. It assesses them on a combination of their records and their methodological transparency. Some pollsters are consistently more accurate than the field, but there are many ways to judge quality. The Economist's general election polling average weights polls solely by sample size and recency. So larger and newer polls contribute a greater share to the overall score. On this basis, Mr. Trump leads Mr. Biden in national polls by 2.3 points. That compares with a 0.2-point lead for Mr. Biden in an unweighted average that gives polls from six months ago the same weight as those from this past week. The size of Mr. Trump's lead varies widely by the quality of pollster, as assessed by 538. This early in the election cycle, the pollsters in its highest tier have run polls only sporadically. However, in total, 13 polls have been conducted in 2024 by by firms in 
this group. On average, they show a virtual tie between Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden. By contrast, most polls released in January 2024 have come from firms with good but not exceptional records. Polls in these good and decent tiers show Mr. Trump with a 2.4 point and 1.7 point lead, respectively. Meanwhile, pollsters with a poor record or no previous published results show Mr. Trump with an average lead of around six percentage points. National polls reflect the general mood and correspond to the popular vote. But thanks to the Electoral College system, winning the popular vote is no guarantee of electoral victory. In 2000 and 2016, for example, Republican nominees won the presidency despite losing the popular vote. In recent decades, the Electoral College has benefited Republican candidates. If Mr. Trump were to win the popular vote by a six-point margin, he would most certainly win at least 358 Electoral College votes, giving him the largest Republican victory since George H.W. Bush's in 1988. This would bring into play even states that Mr. Biden won comfortably in 2020, such as Maine, Minnesota, New Hampshire, New Mexico, and Virginia. To those who think that all polls are created equal, Mr. Trump has opened a modest but growing lead nationwide. But to those who insist that pollsters' historical accuracy predicts future accuracy, the candidates are in a dead heat. From the Americas, corruption in Mexico, the C word. As elections approach, scandalous allegations swirl around the president. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, has long railed against corruption. But on January 30th, a consortium of news outlets reported that in 2006, his campaign team had accepted $2 million from drug gangs in return for favors. The reports, based on information from the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, do not show that the president knew what was going on. But a close aide did, they allege. Mr. Lopez Abrador completely rejects the allegations, calling them slander. These reports follow others. A recent article on a local news site alleged that Mr. Lopez Abrador's third son, Gonzalo Lopez Beltran, ran a network overcharging contractors supplying materials for the Tren Maya, a tourist train that is one of his father's pet projects. In 2022, his eldest son, Jose Ramon, has revealed to have been living in a luxury pad in Houston connected to a contractor for Pemex, the state oil company. Mr. Lopez Obrador and his family have denied any wrongdoing in all of these cases. Some scorn the credibility of the allegations surrounding Mr. Lopez Obrador's 2006 campaign. They put them down to political skullduggery ahead of elections in June. Though he cannot run again, wounding him would also harm his preferred 
successor, Claudia Scheinbaum, of the ruling party Marina. She is most certain to win, but others like Fernando Nito of the College of Mexico in Mexico City think the latest reports need further investigation. Overall, Mr. Lopez Obrador's management of corruption has been appalling, whatever else he claims. Surveys reveal that 86% of Mexicans say acts of corruption are frequent when dealing with the government. The biggest reported case of embezzlement by a government agency involving more than $800 million happened on Mr. Lopez Obrador's watch. Functionaries at Sega. Segalmex, an agricultural agency, used fake contracts to siphon off cash. But there have been a very low number of complaints of corruption and an extraordinarily low number of investigations, says Issa Luna Play of the Auto of the Autonomous University of Mexico. State processes hardly help. Fully 80% of public contracts are, are still awarded without tendering, despite the president's promises of change. He has also cut funding for the transparency body, which looks into impropriety, and has just introduced a bill, although one unlikely to pass, to rid of it to get rid of it entirely. The president enjoys an approval rating of over 60%, and the new allegations are meager compared with those hurled at the previous government. Nonetheless, a grubby new phase in the presidential race may have begun. From Asia, Japan's opposition, can the center-left be revived? Izumi Kinta, the leader of Japan's main opposition, Constitutional Democratic Party, CDP, is itching for change. In an interview with The Economist, the self-declared progressive laments the country's slow growth and demographic woes. The culprit, he reckons, is the conservative rule of the Liberal Democratic Party, LDP, which has endured for most of the past seven decades. Old values have kept sucking the economy's vitality, says Mr. Izumi. We want to change things. In theory, he has a rare opportunity. The LDP is beset by a financial scandal. Its leader, Kishida Fumio, Japan's prime minister, is very unpopular. Yet Mr. Izumi's party is struggling to take advantage. The CDP's net approval rating is around 5% in most polls, while the LDP garners between 15% and 35%. This reflects the opposition party's genesis. The party it emerged from in 2017, the Democratic Party of Japan, DPJ, has the misfortune to be in power when a massive tsunami hit in 2011. Many blamed the painful aftermath on DJP incompetence, badly damaging the party's reputation. 
Some of the criticism was warranted. Having antagonized Japan's powerful bureaucracy, the DPJ was also unable to implement much of the reform it had promised. The DPJ tried too hard to come up with an alternative system, says Makihara Izuru of the University of Tokyo. Still, the degree to which the center-left remains stained by this failure is hard to fathom. Mr. Izumi, who took the helm of the CDP in 2021, hopes to fix this weakness, in part by directing the party to adopt more realistic and popular policies. He took over from Idano Yukio, a former DPJ Secretary General, who was especially associated with the party's wretched spell in power. Most Japanese recall Mr. Idano appearing on television in a blue jumpsuit following the tsunami and subsequent meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. Mr. Izumi, who at 49 is young by the standard of Japanese politicians, represents an opportunity to reset. Yet having also served in the DPJ administration, he still has his work cut out to reassure skeptical voters that his party is fit to govern. Born of an inveterate opposition party, the CDP is often accused of lacking a positive vision. Mr. Izumi, who likens his party to the Democrats in America and the Labour Party in Britain, does have ideas. They include socially liberal policies, such as legalizing gay marriage and allowing married couples to use different surnames, which a majority of the public supports. Yet Mr. Izumi is struggling to get much of a spotlight on his party. He admits it lacks social media savvy, yet also expresses frustration with low with how fixated the Japanese media are on the ruling party. Many political scientists support that analysis. The media are so accepting of the idea that the LDP is the only game in town, says Nakano Koichi of Sophia University. Mr. Izumi warrants more attention, if only for a change that he is already bringing to Japanese politics. Center-left parties such as the CDP have traditionally taken a more skeptical view of Japan's alliance with America and clung to the country's post-war pacifist identity. Thus, the ill-fated D. PJ government, for the sake of presenting a grand alternative vision, as Mr. Izumi puts it, sought to moderate the LDP's more hawkish security policies, alarming America. By contrast, he supports Mr. Kishida's effort to bolster defense. This echoes public opinion, which has become more security-minded since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Mr. Izumi has also shown a willingness to revive the center-left's long-standing opposition to nuclear energy. Besides being sensible in itself, this is also in step with public opinion. The meltdown of Fukushima caused a furious anti-nuclear backlash that led to the government shutting down nuclear plants across Japan.
But high energy prices have weakened the anti-nuclear lobby. And without nuclear power, Japan will struggle to achieve its decarbonization goals. Mr. Izumi has shown measured support for restarting nuclear power stations. He still has much to do to revive the center-left opposition, but the pragmatism he is demonstrating makes it seem possible. From the Middle East and Africa, Africa's Housing Crisis, How to House the World's Fastest-Growing Population. From Dakar, some 70% of the buildings needed in 2040 are not yet built. Shiny cars line the streets of Nagor, a suburb of Dakar. Beside the occasional passing sheep are telltale signs of wealth, ice cream shops and gyms that should be enticing to banks offering mortgages, yet loans are hard to come by. Sam Thayanar and his family live in two rooms of the apartment block he is building. The rest he hopes to rent out. Although construction started years ago, the building is a mess of concrete and exposed wires. When I save a little money, I buy some sand and cement and build a little more, he says. He applied for a loan of 10 million CFA francs, $16,500, from a credit mutual, but was rejected. Nearby, Ibrihama Duoff shovels sand to make bricks. Could he ever get a mortgage? Never, 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 he replies. The struggle to finance and build homes is contributing to a profound housing crisis in sub-Saharan Africa. In almost all African countries, even the very cheapest new homes is too expensive for a typical teacher or police officer with the mortgage they could obtain, according to the Center for Affordable Housing Finance in Africa, a research outfit based in Johannesburg. Instead, many Africans live in housing without toilets or reliable electricity. Some 230 million people, half of all urban dwellers in Africa, live in slums, a number that is rising because of urbanization and population growth. Yet Africa's need for housing is also a tremendous opportunity. A mind-bending 70% of the buildings expected in Africa in 2040 do not exist, reckons the UN. Building them could be a boon not just for slum dwellers, but for growth, jobs, and potentially climate-friendly construction. Africa will be the construction site of the world, enthuses Ian Shapiro of Rial, an investor in African housing. One reason for this chronic shortage of decent housing lies with how homes are built now. Perhaps 90% are self-built, usually incrementally over many years. Cities are thus riddled with unfinished buildings. Some buy their homes from developers while they pay a portion up front more during construction and the rest on completion. Yet if developers do not sell enough apartments in the building or hit other troubles, then everything stops. It puts the risk on the buyer, says Sita Shah of S. 
FSD Kenya, a financial think tank. You could get burned or you could get your home. Both ways of building tie up scarce capital in cement that houses no one and earns nothing for years. And because of the tight finances, truly large-scale housing projects are rare. Building quality homes in Africa also involves a fiendishly complex set of tasks, from buying land and wrangling title to per se persuading governments to install water to the area and finding a buyer. Finishing one step often depends on progress in all the others, and such needs financing. It's a dance. It's not a straight line, says Keisha Rust of CAHF. The cheapest new house generally costs the equivalent of twenty to forty thousand dollars, yet income per person is only about seventeen hundred a year. The high cost is partly caused by red tape in Kenya. For example, there are 140 laws, policies, and regulations relating to affordable housing. Building codes, which often date back to the colonial era, also set inappropriate standards. In Kenya, a car park is required for any two-bedroom home. The result is that those who build formally cannot build cheaply. Many small builders dodge regulations altogether. That makes the homes they build cheaper, but often more dangerous. The lack of land titles hits supply and drives up prices. Developers need this paperwork before they can build. Without it, they risk losing the entire investment. Yet just 4% of countries in Africa have mapped and registered the private land in their capital cities. On average, it costs more than 7% of the value of the property to register it. In parts of Nigeria, this cost reaches 20%. Weak titles also make it harder for people to borrow. This is because banks will generally refuse to lend against a property if its ownership is fuzzy. That is one reason why there are vanishingly few mortgages in Africa. Uganda, with almost 50 million people, has about 7,000 mortgages outstanding. It is not an extreme case. In most sub-Saharan countries, the stock of mortgage debt to GDP is lower than 1%. By comparison, in Britain, it is 65%. A second reason is that perhaps 85% of people have informal jobs, such as selling fruit at the market or riding a motorbike taxi. As such, they do not have pay slips that could prove to banks that they have a regular income and can afford to repay a loan. A third reason is that many Africans need a loan to start building a home, but banks are especially reluctant to lend if the only collateral is undeveloped land. Bigger financial forces push up mortgage rates and sharply limit the number of loans available, too. A rule of thumb is that mortgage rates need to be in single digits to have a chance of being affordable, says Simon Wally of the World Bank. 
Yet, just 15 out of 48 countries for which there are data in sub-Saharan Africa have rates below 10%. This is firstly because central bank interest rates, a floor for mortgages, are persistently high to curb inflation. Compounding the problem is the scarcity of long-term finance in Africa and the fact that governments grab most of it by borrowing heavily. Banks and investors can earn 13 to 15 percent a year simply by buying a government bond. Setting up a retail bank, finding customers, and then trying to measure the credit risk of people with no payslips and fuzzy collateral involves an awful lot of effort and risk in comparison. There have been efforts in recent years to make mortgages cheaper, often by setting up mortgage refinance companies. These are usually owned by clubs of banks backed by governments and get cheap loans and equity from development finance institutions, such as the World Bank. This allows them to borrow more cheaply in capital markets than banks can. The refinance companies then pass on their lower borrowing rates to banks to allow them to offer cheaper mortgages. Eight countries in West Africa jointly have such a firm, while Kenya, Tanzania, and Nigeria each have one. These have helped, but nowhere near enough. In Tanzania, which has a population of 67 million, the mortgage refinance company directly backs only 1,500 outstanding mortgages. In Kenya, with a population of 56 million, the mortgage refinance company has backed just 2,876 loans in almost five years, less than a tenth of its target. Mr. Wally of the World Bank, which has lent to most of these companies, says the problem is that the housing supply response hasn't happened, or not to the scale we would have liked. High underlying interest rates also limit their impact, says Aliu Megai of the International Finance Corporation, the private sector arm of the World Bank. He also points to a tougher problem, poverty. What do you do? Whatever you do, it's very, very difficult to fit income levels into the housing equation, he says. All this is prompting a radical rethink. Mr. Wally believes mortgages can reach a wider scale in Africa someday, but says that currently, at best, they are going to serve the richest 5 to 15 percent of the population. Mr. Maga is blunter. Acquisition by individuals and the mortgage, to me, are not necessarily the right instrument in Africa. That is striking, given that the IFC partly owns and finances the mortgage refinance companies in West Africa, Tanzania, and Kenya. The IFC is now resetting its housing strategy altogether. If mortgages modeled on the rich world are not right for Africa, what is? One answer is to embrace the reality that African houses are often self-built in stages. Ranks are starting, banks are starting to offer smaller, shorter-term loans to enable families, for example, to build an extra room to rent out. 
Housing Finance Bank in Uganda does just this. Its loans are typically for three years and are worth about $4,000 on average. The bank requires some collateral, but dodges the headaches of formal title by accepting guarantors and sales agreements for land or even just belongings like a motorbike or fridge. The performance of these loans is good, says Michael Mugabe, HFB's managing director. They don't default. Because a loan allows a building extension to be completed without delay, it is an efficient use of capital. Such loans still require clever ways of assessing the credit worthiness of informal workers. Sintelect, an Indian startup, is trying to help with machine learning. An algorithm is fed the results of a questionnaire tailored to the borrower's trade, from street food vendor to tailor, and also uses utility payments, mobile money records, and geolocation intelligence about whether, say, a street vendor has a wealthy potential clientele nearby. It recently signed up with Kenya's largest microfinance organization to help with credit decisions for housing loans. Others see more hope in bigger developers because they may solve the problem of bank loans for new builds. Unity Homes, a developer in Kenya and Nigeria, uses the value of its underdeveloped land to provide mortgage banks with financial guarantees that it will complete construction projects. This gives the banks the security they need to lend to customers buying homes before they are completed. Still, full mortgages are out of reach for people who are not in formal employment. To help them, some DFIs and private firms are experimenting with rental and rent-to-own models. Housing needs to be approached like big infrastructure projects, says Mr. Maiga of IFC. By that, he means very large developments built by private firms where governments, institutional investors, and DFIS guarantee to buy the homes. Families then rent or rent to buy from these institutional owners. Rent to buy removes the need for an upfront deposit. Instead, tenants slowly accumulate ownership over time. The IFC has recently agreed to pilot programs in this style with three governments in West Africa. Private firms are also turning to rentals. After more than a decade as a developer of large housing projects in Africa for sale to families, Daniel Font came to a worrying conclusion. In some ways, we were completely wrong. Most people had no access to mortgages, and those who did buy their units rented them out anyway, he explains. Mr. Font now leads a new company, SIV Africa, which is building rental homes in Africa. The company plans to own, maintain, and operate the projects over the long term while also selling a share of the portfolio, Quality Homes for People, 
of the portfolio on capital markets. The goal is to build quality homes for people who have no access to banks. That is 90% of the population in Africa, says Mr. Font. For the hundreds of millions of Africans with no chance of getting a mortgage and who live in cramped, poorly lit, and often unsanitary homes, the rethink cannot happen quickly enough. From Europe, with friends like these, Putin extends his crackdown to troublesome war supporters. On January 25th, a Russian court sentenced Igor Gherkin, a former officer of the S. FSB, Russian's main security service, to four years in a penal colony for the crime of public incitement of extremist activity. His arrest last July, days after he had criticized Vladimir Putin's wartime decisions and called the Russian president a cowardly mediocracy on social media, he sent shockwaves through Russia's active community of pro-war nationalists, many of whom deem him a hero. McGurkin's reputation rests on his paramedical military career. Under the code name Strelkov, meaning marksman, he proved a key figure in both the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the initial organization of rebel groups in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. He remains a strong supporter of both the war and Russia's resurgent national project, notwithstanding running afoul of the Kremlin. Kremlin. The case has heralded a shift in Kremlin prison policy, which now not merely punishes critics of the war, but also seeks to rein in the excesses of troublesome supporters. Politically motivated cases in Russia have long resulted in draconian prison sentences, but the motivations for such prosecution have shifted with time. In the 2000s, cases were brought against prominent business figures like Mikhail Kordoskovsky, an oligarch, and Sergei Mag. Nitsky, a tax advisor who later died violently while in custody in the 2010s political prisoners tended to be in the 2010s political prisoners tended to be involved in protest movements as was the case with the band Pussy Riot and with the house arrest in 2014 of Alexei Navalny, Russia's most prominent opposition leader. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 22, however, the policy shifted again and Russia's many prisons started to be used as an instrument for punishing opponents of the war. Mr. Navalny, who has been held in custody since 2021, has received two additional sentences since the invasion began, first for 19 years and then for another 19 as an aside, this article is written before Mr. Navalny died in prison. Punishment, even against grassroots activists, has veered into the absurd. One example is the seven-year sentence imposed in mid-November on Sasha Sakchilenko, an artist who replaced grocery store price tags with criticisms of the Russian army and the war effort. 
Last summer, Olga Smirnova, an activist, was sentenced to six years in jail in connection with seven war-related posts she had made on the Kontakta, a Russian social media platform. Cases such as these are launched selectively. And to set an example, says Sergei Troshin, a St. Petersburg municipal conciliator, Councilor, who has expressed public support for both Mr. Smir- Ms. Smirnova and Ms. Skolchilenko. The task of the state set for itself was to take a few people and publicly hand them large sentences, he said. You can think of this as precision repression, and it makes people scared enough to halt their activism. According to OVD Info, a human rights monitor, approximately 160 Russians have been imprisoned, and over 850 have been prosecuted for anti-war activities since the start of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. The prison system has also been used as a reward for loyalty as much as a punishment for defiance. Prisoners, many of whom had been convicted for multiple violent crimes, have walked free with full pardons after serving in the Russian army in Ukraine for as little as six months. This has been framed in state-run media outlets and friendly social media as a reward for loyalty to a new national project centered on resistance to the West, the promotion of multipolar world and Russia's continuing influence in the near abroad. However, a recent investigation conducted by BBC Russia uncovered a shift in policy. In an effort to curb local resentment and probably to distance the president from what has proved to be a controversial policy during the run-up to the presidential elections next month, ex-convict veterans are now required to serve until the war's end in return for probation rather than a pardon. Exoneration may only be received in cases when soldiers reach the military's age limit, earn a special commendation, or are maimed in combat, described as health loss. In the science and technology area, baby AI through the eyes of a child. For decades, linguists have argued over how children learn language. Some think that babies are born as blank slates who pick up language simply from experience, hearing, seeing, and playing with the world. Others argue that experience is not enough and that babies' brains must be hardwired to make acquiring language easy. AI models such as GPT-4 have done little to settle the debate. The way these models learn language by trawling through reams of text data from millions of web pages is vastly different to the experience of babbling babies. A team of scientists at New York University examined the question by training an AI model on the experiences of a single infant. Between the ages of 6 and 25 months, a toddler called Sam wore a head-mounted camera for an hour a week around one 
90% of his waking hours. The camera recorded everything he saw and heard while he played with toys, enjoyed days at the park, and interacted with his pet cats. The recordings and transcribed audio were fed into an AI, which was set up to know that images and words that appeared at the same time were related, but was otherwise left to make sense of the mess of colors and speech that Sam experienced. Despite the limited training data, the AI was able to pick out objects and learn the matching words. The researchers tested the model by asking it to identify objects that Sam had seen before, such as a chair from his home or one of his toy balls. Given a list of four options, the model picked the correct word 62% of the time, far above the chance level of 25%. To the researchers' surprise, the model could also identify chairs and balls that Sam had never seen. The AI learnt at least 40 different words, but it was far from matching Sam's vocabulary and language abilities by the end of the experiment. The researchers, published recently in the journal Science, argue that to match words to objects, learning from experience may well be enough. Skeptics, however, doubt that the AI would be able to learn abstract nouns or verbs and question how similar the learning processes really are. The mystery of language acquisition lives on. We have time for a letter to the editor. You're Never Too Old is the topic of this one, and it is written by Jonathan Totman from Thailand. Bartleby wrote about the dangers of retiring, giving us the examples of some highly successful octo and non-agonarian outliers who still work. The problem for many successful or mildly so professionals who achieve some authority in the later stages of their professions is that they kid themselves into believing people genuinely appreciate their point of view rather than the authority granted with long service. Most of us aren't really so gifted that our advice is really sought after. I'd like to offer an alternative view. Embrace the later stages of life. Have a purpose, be it a hobby or voluntary support to a cause, and let the next generation do things unencumbered by your suggestions and wisdom. Here's one more on retirement by Will Moss, who lives in Suffolk. For those of us not blessed with 89-year-old Giorgio Armani's role as head of a multi-billion dollar company, the prospect of an eternity ingesting the soul-sapping gruel of corporate life is truly horrific. Endless meetings, ghastly hotels, budget reviews, office politics, technical committees, audit reviews, performance appraisals, terrible IT, wearying travel, egregious management, away days, policy forums, marketing initiatives, program boards, risk sessions, customer complaints. All these combine to rinse out any joy or meaning you may experience from Monday to Friday and frequently Saturday and Sundays too. 
I am retired and spent 35 minutes this afternoon staring at a large and majestic acacia tree in my garden because I could and wanted to. I gained more spiritual nourishment from this episode than anything that had occurred in my 40 years in corporate life. That's all the time we have for today. This has been Mary Kiefer with a reading of The Economist. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.